Lord God, speak to us now. Amen. Uh, one final notice, sorry. Um, in the interest of, uh, of intellectual honesty, the sermon that's about to come is, is drawn heavily from two sources. Um, the first is uh, from, from two intellectual sources, from Tim Keller and Dallas Willard, two of my intellectual gurus. And the second source has been uh, uh, my good friends, Caffeine and Pseudoephedrine. So, um, as I've had a cold this week, so, you know, you can figure out, does Keller or the Pseudoephedrine uh, win at the end of the day? And we'll see. So when, you, when someone asks you, how's your week been, or how are you doing, what do we often say? We say, great. We say, busy, busy, tired. I think a lot of us are busy, tired. And you can see that because there's an escalation in how much money we spend on our vacations, on our holidays. Uh, and we live for our holidays. And what we discover, though, very often in our culture is no matter what, how much money we spend on our holidays, we're never really that well rested. And uh, there's a constant chronic tiredness that sort of infects us. Uh, I don't know if you've had this experience, if you're recently retired. I speak to folk who are retired and, and, and you know, there's this Aussie dream or this sort of Western world dream after, you know, Bismarck introduced retirement as a concept in Germany, you know, 100 years ago or more. Um, uh, and, uh, and now there's this dream, I work really, really, really hard through my life. And then I can retire as soon as I can, and I can just sit back and do nothing, right? And I'll be completely at peace in my retirement, completely chilled out, relaxed, soul rest. Uh, and I discover lots of folk, and you may be one of those who go, you, you move from work and into retirement, and retirement isn't one endless, blissful experience of deep soul rest. You just get busy and stressed. And I was talking with someone last week who's just had a baby, and they were going, oh, we're so tired. We have no time. And we thought when we were, you know, when we, before we had the child, we thought we were busy. And now we think, all these people who don't have kids at home and little babies, how can they possibly be tired? How can they think that they're busy? But we all do. We're tired. We're busy. And here's why. Here's the dominant paradigm of our life together. Um, we... I uh, just have to reconnect my Apple Pencil. We, um, our paradigm is that we, we rest from work. Okay? Um, but that's a problem. <laughs> work never finishes and rest is never really restful in our culture. And I want to suggest today, and I'm going to show you how we get this from Hebrews 4, that there's a different way of understanding work and rest, and actually biblically, uh, and this is a way that brings psychological and social healing and health, is that we're actually to work from rest. So this is going to be a sermon about uh, three things. It's going to be a sermon about the centrality and importance of rest, it's going to be uh, a sermon about the three kinds of rest the Bible holds out for us. And then finally, it's going to be a sermon about how, about the journey to that rest. Okay, the centrality of rest, the three kinds of rest, the journey to that rest. And I thought during the week when I was in bed fighting off a cold, dosed up to the eyeballs with drugs, I thought, I've got a great idea for this. This sermon on rest, I've, I've laid it out. Now let's just spend 20 minutes having a rest and then we'll be done. How cool will that be? It'd be a bit awkward for everyone listening online, but you know, nah, they can get it. 
That won't help, though. That won't help, because simply downing tools doesn't bring us this kind of rest. Uh, so here's what I want to do. Firstly, I want to say that the importance or priority of rest. Uh, rest uh, is a key promise of the Bible. And uh, because... It is central to our humanity. How does this text help us see that? That's a big claim, right? Right there. Rest is central to our humanity. So Hebrews 4 comes after Hebrews 3. And, uh, and Hebrews... <laughs> that's why you pay me the big bucks, right? Insights like that. Um, Hebrews 4 is unpack, continuing to unpack the argument that began in Hebrews 3, talking about Israel's failure to enter the rest, quoting on things like Psalm 95. Um, but this is what... Uh, this is the judgment that God brings on his people for their disobedience. And the judgment is what? In verse 3. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. God's people had been in slavery in Egypt. He brought them out miraculously. They're on the way to the promised land. They, they, they rebel against God. They sin. And the judgment is, okay, people, you're not going to enter my rest. Now, um, Here's another word. So somehow rest is so important that withholding it from us is an act of God's judgment. To put it more positively, I'll tell you, I'll show you why rest is so significant. Uh, If you think of the Ten Commandments that God gave as a uh, kind of a mandate or a picture or a paradigm of human flourishing. This is what humanity looks like. This is the contour or the shape of the good life in the Ten Commandments. We find that rest is, is given to us as a commandment. Only ten and one of those slots is given over to rest, isn't it? And, and the, the commandment is to keep the Sabbath day as, as a day of rest, central and fundamental. So if you stop and think about it, that's extraordinary. God is saying that a society that uh, promotes overwork, a society that, is, that, that, works, that, that creates a culture of workaholism is as brutalizing and dehumanizing as a society that promotes or legitimates um, uh, theft or adultery or murder. It's that significant. It's right up there. The need to rest is as significant as the need to uh, not murder people. It's that fundamental to our humanity. Um, and it's, it's brutalizing when we get that wrong. Re- uh, rest is significant. So uh, rest is significant. So one answer could be to say, well, the problem, the problem with our lack of rest is just uh, all work is bad, right? So sometimes you see that uh, we, we find rest problematic. So in our culture, what we do is we try and get to a point where we never have to work. It's called retirement or long vacations, right? And we can think, is that really what the Bible's saying, that really the answer to find real rest is to quit work? And you go, no, that's not at all what it's saying. Uh, what the Bible says is actually, you know, we have a very problematic relationship with work. And the problem with our relationship with work is what feeds into our problem of rest and what messes up our experience of rest. So think about your experience of work. 
Uh, there's, two, there's two problems, really, uh, people would say with work and, and workaholism. One of which is technology seems to make it easier for us to become enslaved to our work, doesn't it? So a very simple thing like electricity means that we can put lights on at a, at a very low cost. So uh, historically, it was extraordinarily expensive. You might have to work for a month to save the surplus capital to buy a candle to light one room in your home for a night. Okay, stored energy in the form of beeswax uh, to light a room was very expensive. So you rested because when the sun went down, you all went to bed. And then when the sun came up, you got up. Electricity comes along and we can prolong the day. And then, you know, it's not just electricity. So now stored energy in the form of electricity is dirt cheap. You know, maybe you have to work for like a minute to, to pay for the electricity to keep a light on in your house for, for an evening, right? It's, it's so, so cheap. But the, and of course, we all know then in addition to that, which sort of pioneered the Industrial Revolution, the Digital Revolution now also means work goes with us all the time, doesn't it? Like it seeps into every corner of our lives. Um, you know, Elizabeth's there checking her work emails now, uh, just seeing what's happening. You're all, you know, you know what it's like. The notifications go off, it buzzes, it, and, and people demand a response. So, so one thing is we can say, well, the technology is the problem. So yes, it is a problem. But technology is only a problem because of a deeper problem in our hearts uh, that find fertile ground for self-enslavement and workaholism. This is what I mean. We could all turn off our emails, couldn't we? We can all say no to work. We just typically choose not to and find it very hard to say no to work because uh, we use work in our individualistic culture as a way to create a sense of self, of an identity, of value and worth and meaning. See, in previous times, in previous cultures, who you were was uh, essentially a product of your family relationships. You know, I would be Mark, son of so-and-so, son of so-and-so, son of so-and-so, and we'd lived in this village for the last 200 years, and my father was a blacksmith, so I'm a blacksmith. That's just who I am, right? And, and for good or ill, it was great if you were the son of a king, well, except they often got killed, but you know, great if you were in a high status thing, but even if, you were in a, and even if you were a peasant, like there was a settledness about your identity because it was, a, it was given to you from your social networks, your relationship, your tribe, your culture. There's been a shift over the last couple of hundred years towards a radical individualism which says we don't have a given identity, there's no givenness to us, we have to create it. We have we're, we're this grand enlightenment project of making ourselves. So who you are, your value as a person, your purpose in life, your worth, your dignity comes from what you make of yourself. And there's no end to that project. It's never enough. It, you know, you actually, and you'll see how this distorts uh, everything. It distorts our parenting, for example, because now, instead of a family being the thing that was the basis for our sense of self, uh, in, an, in an extended given sense, now, in an individualistic sense, so many parents uh, see the project of raising kids 
as a means for their own self-actualization, their own self-worth, and the creation of their own selves. So it's a right that they have to have kids, to fulfill themselves, and then you, if that's, you know, then you add on to that a layer, I can't just have any kid, I need to have a high-performing kid, because I'm a high-performing person. So this area is awash in parental anxiety about their kids. You know, I've got to get my kid into the gifted and talented program. I've got to be super smart. They've got to be high achievers. We live in a knowledge economy where where we're we're told this, this, I think, lie that intellectual capacity, a high ATAR score, a good university degree, means you'll be a worthwhile, valuable human being and a person with a certain level of economic success. And your work will determine who your friends are, who you, where you can live, who you, where you can send your kids to school, who you are as a person. So we have this culture of massive parental anxiety over parenting. But parents are in a bind, aren't they? Because I look around here. You've got to create yourself. And so you're working crazy hours and you, both partners are working crazy hours. But then you've also got to kind of parent these super achieving kids so they can be super achieving beings to reflect glory onto you. And, and it's all very, very, very stressful. I feel tired just thinking about that. So we're, we're in this grand project to create ourselves. And that's why we can't rest, because the work of creating a sense of self is never done. It's never done. And we're slaves. I'm always falling behind. I'm always being diminished. Someone else is always getting ahead of me. Someone's always prettier and thinner and younger and faster and smarter and richer. So I'm never done. I'm never done. Okay, so that's, that's the, the central, and that's dehumanizing, right? So we're slaves to work because we can't say no to that project, uh, even though we need to. And it kills us, has all kinds of profoundly uh, destructive effects. Now, uh, the text then says the answer to this, uh, if you want to think about it, uh, is that there are three kinds of rest. And I don't know, when Rolf was reading that Uh, passage for us, you might be excused for thinking, I don't really get that argument. How many of you thought that? Maybe if you were even paying attention beyond, you thought, man, that's a little confusing right there. And it is, at least one, there's a whole bunch of reasons it's confusing. One of which is the word rest is used in in three different senses. Uh, So the English word translated as rest is used in at least three different senses uh, in the text. Uh, So let's have a look at them. Three levels or types of rest um, in the text, which are very significant. Uh, The first level is uh, promised land rest. And uh, we see promised land rest in uh, verse uh, 3, where where there's held out to Israel, and in in chapter 3, there's held out to Israel the rest that God lays before them of entering the land of Canaan, the land of freedom from their enemies without and their enemies within. Uh, Here's the story, right? Israel are slaves in Egypt. They're populating, and Pharaoh is worried, because demographics are destiny, that the Israelites are going to overcome the Egyptians. So what is Pharaoh's strategy to subjugate and limit the, uh, the power of the Israelite slaves. What's his strategy to contain them? 
Think back to Sunday school. Kill the babies. Work harder. He's going to work them to death. That's what he's going to do. Egypt is a place of slavery where they are being worked, literally worked to death. Or at least worked to a place of infertility. Uh, So they're slaves. And God has said, I'm going to take you into the promised land and I'm going to set you free from, from Egypt, from slavery to being worked to death. And that's the promise. And, and it's, so it's a freedom from, from slavery. It's also freedom from their external enemies. They're not going to be killed. They're going to have a, an external level of rest where they can just get on with life. They're in charge of their own means of production, to quote Marx. And uh, they, can, they can plant their fields. They can grow their crops. They can feed their families. They're not going to be enslaved. They're not going to be killed. They have ex- so I like to think of the promised land as, uh, as a place... Of, 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 of top-level rest, where we're not enslaved, we're in charge, and uh, we are able to control our work and our family, and we're not living in constant fear um, of death all around us. So the promise, that's kind of where we live now a lot of the time, right? We're not enslaved. Um, I, though, you know, if you want to see a good... I, I've just finished watching The Handmaiden's Tale, right? Uh, it's, it's what you do when you're drugged up and you're asleep and you're sort of watching this great... It's a great bit of TV. Um, if you want to see an example of, of slavery, watch that. Um, don't read the silly articles that say our culture is very close to this. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's a million miles away. Slavery still exists. 40 million people in modern-day slavery. It doesn't exist in our culture on that scale. It's a terrible, oppressive, wicked thing. We're not there. We're living in the promised land where we're free to work, to rest, to control our own biological destinies. But here's the... Here's... There's something going on in the promised land that even in the promised land of Canaan, the Israelites were still able (laughs) to find themselves enslaved. They could still live like they were back in Egypt. They could bring Egypt with them into Canaan and still find themselves enslaved. So that's a problem. And that takes us uh, to the second level of rest, the second type of rest we see in this text. And uh, bear with me as we build this argument. And the second type of rest uh, in this uh, passage is God's rest, which is, which is an interesting concept, isn't it, God's rest? I mean... Um, this is what it says. They shall never enter my rest in verse 3. And the, then again, and yet his works have been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day. That's, this would be Genesis 1 and 2. In these words, on the seventh day, God rested from all his work. And again, they shall never enter my rest. Now, why does God rest? It can't be the sort of rest we need, like a rest from physical work. Because God, God is, is spirit. He doesn't have a body. So surely it's not like he gets tired. He's like, oh, man, I'm like, I've created the world and I'm just, I need a smoker, right? It's like, oh, I'm so exhausted. It can't be that. It, it has to be different. What is it? Well, uh, God's rest, the hint is given to us here, uh, his works have been finished. When God creates the world in and, and everything in the Bible, really, we can tie back to those first three chapters of Genesis, really, so it's all there. Um, God creates the world in six days, and what does he, when he finishes his work, he looks at it and he says, what about it? 
it's good. Every time it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, and then it's very good. And then Hebrews says, he looks at it and he goes, it's finished. So God's rest is the rest of a being who looks at all that he's done and goes, it's enough. I'm completely 100% satisfied with what I've achieved because it's complete. It's very, very good. I couldn't make it any better. I couldn't do any better. This is exactly how I want it to be. Huh. Down tools and it's great. That's God's rest. That's God's rest. It's good. Uh, now, that's the rest that we don't have. Because our work of creating ourselves is never finished. We're never enough. We're never good enough, are we? Brene Brown does a great job of showing this in, in, in a number of her TED Talks and books. This, this scarcity mentality that we're never enough, we're never enough, we're never enough. Now, I don't think Brene goes to give us as profound an answer as the book of Hebrews does, but she certainly highlights the problem beautifully. This work is never finished. So we, we can't enter this deep rest because there's always more to do. We're always inadequate. Um, this what we need to do is to, is to find a way to get rid um, of this drive uh, uh, towards self-justification, this project of creating ourselves. Where does it, where does it come from, this problem? Well, um, think about this. Uh, in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, Adam and Eve are, are looking after the world in a place of complete rest with God. They're in a place where God has looked at them and they've looked at each other and they've gone, we are just the way God wants it to be. We are good enough. And we're without shame and we're completely at peace with all of reality, even while they're working. How do we know that this was their psychological state? Because the Bible says they were naked and they weren't ashamed. They were like, good enough. This is just the way God wants it to be. And I'm really completely happy with this. And I'm really completely happy with you. And so they can work, but they're in God's rest. And they do their work that way. There's no shame. What is the very first thing that, hap- that they do uh, after they rebel against God? Is they cover up because they become aware of that profound inadequacy. See, what's the heart of human sin, according to Genesis 3? It's... It's Adam and Eve saying, here's God, and, and I've got this, I can live in, this, in God's rest as long as I trust Him to be God, and I bear the image of God, but I don't have to bear the responsibility of being God. I'm not the creator, I'm a created being, and I can just rest in God, I'm good enough, it's all good. Then they say to God, no, I want to be like you, God. I want to know good and evil. I want to live forever. I want to rule the world. So Adam and Eve, they grab that autonomy and that knowledge. And as soon as they grab that ability, they say, now, I want to be like God. And God gives them what they want, right? Like, be careful what you wish for. Then they suddenly go, holy moly. I now am like God, but I'm really not like God. I'm so not up to this task. 
I'm so inadequate. I mean, think about it. They want human beings, we want to know good from evil. We want to be morally autonomous agents to choose the right thing to do. But we don't have God's omniscience. So how can we possibly make the right choices? We're so terribly limited. So suddenly they're saying, I want all the responsibility of God. But I'm this terribly finite being, and it's crushing. (laughs) And so there's this incredible sense of shame and inadequacy because I've tried to, I've stepped into a pair of boots that are like infinitely too big for me. And so they try and cover themselves up. (gasps) Cover over my shame, right? What do they use to cover over their shame? Fig leaves. No. Uh, 25 years ago, sitting in a university course in philosophy, uh, a wonderful Dominican philosopher, a priest, was going through these texts. And uh, he made the point that, that just blew my mind. He said, you know what? Our drivenness to achieve success, status, good looks, eternal youth, approval of others, he said, these are just our fig leaves that we are using to cover over this deep, fundamental sense of inadequacy that we're trying to be gods, but we're not. (laughs) And we know it. It's this everything we do that keeps us on this treadmill of work we're doing as, as a way of covering over ourselves. Now, here's the thing with fig leaves, right? Um, you might get a really awesome fig leaf, but how long does a fig leaf last? Ah, not that long. So you've, you've always got to find another fig leaf. And, and other people's fig leaves look better than your fig leaves. So there's never, when you're covering, when your clothing is the ultimate in organic biodegradable matter that degrades a whole lot faster than you do, you can never stop finding fig leaves. And that's why we can never rest, because we're finding fig leaves. I need to cover over my shame. I need to find a way to tell myself that I'm good enough, that I'm worthy, that I can make life work. Even our vacations and our holidays become fig leaves. I'm okay, I can rest. Now, let me tell you something. Let me let you in a little secret. Even in the promised land, you can still spend your life searching for fig leaves, living like you're in Egypt. Because there's a religious form of doing this, isn't there? There's a religious form of doing this. And this takes us into the essential part of the journey to the third level of rest. The third level of rest, the third type of rest, uh, the third type of rest is gospel rest, right? And, And what is that? And how do we get it? How do we enter into it? Well, go to the end of chapter, chapter four, and we see this little discursus on the word of God, and it and it's brutal right? These are brutal verses. It says, the word of God is alive and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. It, it penetrates even to the dividing soul and spirit. It joints and marrows. It judges the thoughts and heart, attitudes of the heart. Look at what it's doing. It's judging us. It's exposing us. Nothing in all creation is hidden. Nothing is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him whom we must give an account. The journey to gospel rest starts with God laying us bare, exposing our motives, what's really driving us. 
exposing for us that underneath our sophisticated, inner west, educated uh, lives, everything we have is just fig leaves, man. And we're just driven and we're slaves to this. And, and God wants to expose that, cut through all the rubbish. And that's painful. <laughs> Who likes being exposed? This is the, uh, you know, this is the metaphysical equivalent of trying on swimwear in the change room where you've got mirrors around you on 360 degrees and you see every thing that mostly you can pretend you don't see because you're only ever taking selfies that you carefully curate from the front. It's your exposed, man. It's like when you go to a therapist and the therapist just digs and digs and digs and you come to this moment of self-realization and go, holy crap, that's what's really going on inside of me. Oh, you mean I'm like that? It's exposing our fig leaves. It's showing what's going on. And you know what, even for us religious people, it can show you that there is an exposure of our motivation. The problem is not our work per se, the problem is what motivates us. So you might come to church as, as a religious person and, and what you're doing in your religion is still using religion as a bunch, as a fig leaf. <laughs> you know, like I, if, if I do this and I go through that and I do this, then, then I'll be enough. I'll now not just be a successful professional and parent. I'll now also be a successful professional parent who is connected with God. And isn't that awesome? And, and the journey to gospel rest is saying, no, 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 listen, you need to not just repent of your bad works. Okay, that's good. If you've been out killing and plundering and raping and pillaging, you know, repent of those. Stop doing those things. But the path, the journey to gospel rest is to, as one Puritan writer says, to repent of our damnable good works. To say that, you know, our motives for caring for the poor might still be just so many fig leaves because I'm trying to get God's approval. I'm trying to justify myself. The problem is not the works, the problem is the motivations, and the, the, the journey to gospel rest is to expose those motivations. Repent of your damnable good works so that you can find and enter into God's rest. Now, how does that work? What is gospel rest? Well, let's go back to Genesis. What is, what is the first thing that God does for Adam and Eve? Once they've hidden from him, they've got their fig leaves, they're hiding, God finds them. What does he do for them? Sunday school question. Genesis 3, he finds an innocent animal. He lays bare its neck. He kills it. He skins it. And he covers over their nakedness with the better clothing. Gospel rest is God providing a way to cover over our fundamental shame and brokenness and inadequacies. Gospel rest is God taking away our fig trees, fig leaves and giving us an eternal covering that says we're enough. I don't have to fight. I don't have to work. I don't have to strive to make myself valuable and worthwhile because he's covered all that over for me and he said I'm enough, good enough. 
Now, gospel rest is not just an innocent animal being slain to cover over our sins. Hebrews 2, 17, which we looked at last week, says that Jesus Christ, as God himself and as a fully human person, was the one who died to be an atonement, a covering over of our sin. Gospel rest is saying Jesus is the lamb who was slain to cover over the shame and the guilt that we are trying to cover over with our damnable good works or our just ordinary bad works. Gospel rest is saying we will lay down our self-justifying drivenness and step into the freedom of the unconditional acceptance of God our Father who has died for us in the person of His Son Jesus and now looks at us and says, I'm not ashamed of you. I love you. You are enough. When I know that I am enough, then I can go out into the world and do what God wants me to do without being a slave to work. I can work from a place of gospel rest. I can use who and what I am to go out and change the world, to build a church, to serve the poor, to to be an engineer, to be a teacher, to be a doctor, to clean the streets, to make great art, to change. I can do all of that, not as so many fig leaves desperately driven to try and create a sense of who I am, but because I am living moment by moment in the rest that only God gives. I know I'm loved. I know I'm enough, so I can go out into it. I'll tell you, uh, I'll tell you what that means. A couple of things. It means I have a freedom to fail, <laughs> I can have what Carol Dwecker, educational psychologist, talks about as a, a growth mindset. We're, we're, people are terrified of failure because if, if I fail, it means my whole project is over. So I don't take any risks. I don't live a, a life of radical, authentic love and care for others because I'm, I mean, man, if I, give, if I give you my fig leaf, I'm naked, right? So uh, well, my fig leaf will crumble. And, but in this gospel rest, I can take some risks, I can step beyond what I think is possible into what God wants me to do. And if it all fails, you know what? God still looks at me and says, you know, you're enough. I covered over all that mess. It's okay. So actually it creates a psychological framework for healthy parenting, great marriages, phenomenal organizational leadership, and a wonderful healthy approach to our work and to retirement and to leisure and to vacations. One way to understand the difference uh, the, the movie Chariots of Fire. I remember seeing that so clearly. Now we don't know how historically accurate it is. It's a dramatization. But um, these great lines, there's the two characters, Harold Abrahams and Eric Liddell. Eric Liddell's a Christian, Scotsman, goes off as a missionary, uh, an amazing guy. And they have two very different approaches to their athletics, to their work. Harold Abrahams says, um, I have to run. Because when the gun goes off, I have 10 seconds to justify myself, justify my existence. That's it. The gun goes, he's got, that's it. Everything depends on that. Eric Liddell, the one who is running out of a place of gospel rest, which interestingly led him not to actually run on the Sabbath, and that's another whole story, and God still honored him. But he's running from a place of gospel rest. Eric Liddell says this in the movie, God has made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. That's working from rest. God has made me who I am. 
He's covered over my sin. He's given me everything, and I am enough. And now whatever he's made me, I, when I do what God has made me to do out there in the world, I feel his pleasure. Ah. Sisters, brothers, let me urge you to do whatever it takes to enter that gospel rest today. Do not harden your hearts as Israel did. But enter that rest. Embrace the atoning life and death and resurrection of Jesus for you. And then let's go into this world and run and feel his pleasure tomorrow. When you go into your office, when you go into your law firm, when you go to change nappies after church, let's go and change the world. Working hard from a place of rest. Let's pray. Our God and King, forgive us for the many and varied ways in which we uh, head back to Egypt, living for fig leaves, forgetting the rest that you have prepared for us. Forgive us for our obvious sin, but expose and forgive us for our damnable good works. The motivations of our heart that while on the outside might lead us to do lots of wonderful good things, inside we're slaves to self-justification, self-creation. And I pray, Lord, for us as a church family, that you will uh, you'll help us be a spiritual community that just keeps rubbing, massaging this deep truth into the corners of our souls, that we actually live this out. Oh, Lord, uh, have mercy on us and do this for our sake and for the sake of all those around us who desperately need us to work from this place of gospel rest. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our sacrificed Savior. Amen.